Radio. If you as a climber cannot go out and just enjoy movement and climb all the hard stuff and really try hard, and that's not worth anything to you, you should have a look at how you feel about climbing. Hey y'all, I'm Ryan Devlin and welcome to this month's Struggle Climbing Show Coach Chat with everyone's favorite cellar dweller, Mr. Tom Randall of Lattice Training and Wide Boys fame. Tom and I connect about once a month to zero in on one or two topics that tend to be season specific. And we often look at these through the lens of his and my own personal training goals. And then Tom graciously fields listener questions that range from the informed to the bizarre. Guess we'll find out which is which in today's chat here. The main focus on our conversation here was on how sport climbers and boulderers can look at training load and specificity in the month or so prior to putting in quality red point goes. So as I'm recording this, it's the end of September. I'm trying to peak in November. So we're kind of looking at this next month or so of training and how that transitions to peak performance. And then we also went on some nice tangents involving Adam Andra, how to keep up with friends who are putting in longer days than we can, and what to cut from our workout plan as we get into season. This coach chat is brought to you by our friends over at Friction Labs, and it is just the best chalk around, y'all. From Alex Magos to Michaela Kirsch and so many other mega crushers, pros trust Friction Labs because their performance chalk lasts longer, it's free of fillers and rosin and drying agents, which means your skin stays in great shape, and if you have sweaty hands or if it's warm where you're climbing right now like it is for me, check out their secret stuff liquid chalk. I definitely need to chalk up less when I'm using that, which means I can make more moves on a climb, and that's a pretty rad secret to getting just a little bit better. I mean, maybe that's why they call it secret stuff. I don't know. I, it's just a theory. I'm a podcast host. They don't tell me extra things, but it doesn't matter. You're going to love it. You're also going to love that their packaging is now 100% recyclable. Way to go, you guys. It's truly the best chalk out there, and you can try it risk-free to see for yourself. That's how psyched they are to help you level up. You can enter code STRUGGLE20 at checkout for 20% off your first order. Chalk up less and climb more with Friction Labs. And this episode is also sponsored by patrons and subscribers of the show. If that's you, I love you. Over at Patreon, you can see the uncut video of this chat today with Tom and also gain access to 20 plus hours of exclusive content from the likes of Chris Sharma, Alex Honnold, Nina Williams, Ravioli Biceps, and so many more. Plus, you get that warm, fuzzy feeling of knowing that you're helping me to keep the lights on here in the podcast slash utility closet. All right, let's get jamming, hand jamming, that is. Hey, with Tom Randall. Well, dude, it's so good to see you, man. How, how are you? How's your health? Well, I'm still alive. Haven't, haven't, haven't fallen dead yet. It'll be great for ratings if you would, though. Can we just get through this and right towards the end, if you could just keel over? <laughs> I know. I mean, I nearly felt like it when I uh, had kidney stones last year. That was that was kind of one of the most epic amounts of physical health pain that I've had for some time. Oh, my God. Don't complain too loud around your wife on that, though, because I've, I've heard childbirth rivals the kidney stones. Or maybe maybe it's just a, a opportunity for empathy there. Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny, actually, when you talk to doctors who are, as in female doctors who are also parents and the whole kidney stone thing, and when I've spoken to people, they quite often have said they're definitely up there with two of the more painful 
things. But I mean, what does it matter? They're both really painful. So. Yeah, exactly. It's not co- not competition for sure. Right, right. And at least like at the end of one, you've got a human that will one day take care of you. And the end of the other, you've got a tiny little rock in a vial that you can uh, take home and show to friends. Yeah, I never even got the rock either. Oh, God. Just, yeah. just no positive outcome. Down the pan. <laughs> Well, I'm so happy to see you, dude. You've been busy. You've been deep water soloing. You've been climbing hard stuff. You're about to head to Italy. Never a dull moment for the international man of mystery, Tom Randall. Um, Thanks for joining. No problem. I mean, it's definitely never a dull moment, that's for sure. 100%. And I got to talk, before we jump in, we've got some topics to cover today. But before we jump in, one of the big things that's happened since we last spoke is you were finally able to release these fantastic videos of you with King Andra down in the dirty, dusty, slightly vacuumed, slightly cleaned up Sheffield cellar there. And I I just love to get your thoughts on that, just on the experience of that. And and maybe what surprised you the most from spending time with Adam Andra in your cellar. Yeah, I suppose I'd say it's two things that kind of walked away from that whole experience with climbing with him for those couple of days and it was one is i think his passion for climbing and just deep rooted interest and love of every single part of it runs so deep and it's so consistent with him he doesn't really stop talking about it just everything everything evolves around climbing and it kind of doesn't matter what form of climbing it is he's just interested in it and he wants to talk about it and that's really cool to see. It's not just a, you know, a pro climber that's got this sort of surface or front that looks like they're really into it, but you turn the cameras off and they're they're doing other stuff or or whatever it might be. It's is very, very genuine. And I think it's really unusual to the level with which he does that. Because if you compare him to say someone like Magnus, Magnus is a much broader, I'd say, individual in terms of the things that he's interested in talks around. And whilst he still has a passion for climbing, it moves on to lots of other things as well. And it doesn't, to me, it didn't come across quite the same way with Adam, which probably is a logical considering he's one of the best climbers in the world. Right. And then secondly is that when he tries something and tries hard and he's kind of getting on a link or a, I'm going to do this bold problem or I'm going to do this route, the ability for him to switch from... I'm trying quite hard, like everyone else, like a normal human being, into Adamondra mode is just incredible. It's two different humans. It's so weird to watch it firsthand and go, ah, right, that's that's something, isn't it? And yeah, how what what a what a treat to be like, you know, shoulder to shoulder when when that switch happens. Could does he have a process? Like, could could you see something, you know, that 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 like just lights that fire in him? You know, were you personally as a climber able to take something away? Because as you say, there's us humans as climbers, and then there's Adam Andra. And when he goes into that place, and we've all seen it in videos, but you were there out on the grid as well as in in the cellar there, is he consciously activating something there or is it just almost second nature at this point when he just really wants something i think it's quite conscious is is my feeling with it he kind of like he sets his body you can see his just shoulders sit back a little bit different he seems to kind of 
just breathe and kind of be more intentional in in that thing because it because it's you can notice it as mm. an observer even before he's got on the rock he just holds himself and acts like a different person it's almost like you're witnessing the person who's going to be successful and he behaves like the person who's going to be very successful in that stage and everything yeah. else is learning before that and breaking sections down and trying the moves and chatting about them and reflecting on them. And that's a different version of Adam. And you can watch that and go, oh, I don't think he's going to get up this. It seems like a little way off. And then it's, oh, that's the other mode. Yeah, yeah, he's definitely going to do this. Oh, so man. Breathing, state management, intention, a sort of, uh, yeah, a mixture of those things. Is, is there something for, for you that you were able to take away from that? Like, is there anything that you can now try as you're about to go try hard on some projects? Yeah, I think I remembered a bit more, connected a bit more with that feeling that I had in the past where I was incredibly psyched for something where I couldn't really see how I wouldn't get to the top. And I just couldn't wait to do the climbing and just get involved with it and try really hard. And I've definitely had more phases where I've gone, oh, right, yeah, I'm going to have to try pretty hard here. Oh, this may suck or I might not do this. And I've been more aware of that in, I suppose, maybe the last five years or so when I've had other distractions and other things I've been doing. And yeah, previously it was, you, you just wouldn't fail because you were so in it and you couldn't wait to do it. Yeah. I love that. I just love that. And obviously it comes from a point, like you started this conversation of just absolute love and obsession with the sport, whatever it is, climbing on grit, climbing, you know, cutting edge stuff in Flanninger or, you know, in the cellar there. And look, I could, I messaged you this. I could listen to you and Pete talk about the O grades for hours. <laughs> I could, I, you have my ticket. I'm here. I'm eating popcorn. It is some of the best entertainment in, in climbing. You also caught a little bit of flack when you, you did like this kind of point recap with Pete and, <laughs> and then you like all of a sudden on Instagram, you're kind of like walking back some, some of the remarks that you made. Were you a little bit too hard on Adam's performance down in the cellar there or upon reflection, was it fair? Oh, it's fair. Yeah, definitely fair. I mean, there is no point in going soft on these things. You've, you've got to go in hard with the big O-dog. Your integrity's at stake, you know? I mean, I have not much integrity, so I could, <laughs> I could do whatever. Pete would never give a 10 out of 10. You would give 10s, but then sometimes he'd give a 7 and you're coming in low, 2s and 3s in, in terms of effort. Was it, was it just that, that Adam didn't click into that step out of the phone booth, rip the suit open and show the Superman, you know, cape? He didn't step into that mode enough in the cellar had he had he spent all that out on the grit maybe i mean referencing specifically the kind of the difference in ratings and things like that that me and pete would give on stuff like that i think you just got to consider me and pete we're like we're like sweet and sour we, we go together but we might be quite quite different on these things right. but the blend of both of us gives you gives you the real the real experience through it all so yeah you know tom's two plus pete's seven that's that's a thing that's a you just got to take it take it for what it is 
That's great, man. Well, what did you think Adam took away from that? Because obviously he came in and, and you guys had a great time, but also, as, as you said, you tried really hard. He tried really hard. Do you think you've got years of lattice under your belt, years of coaching, you know, whether he communicated it or not? Like, what do you think was the big takeaway for him? I mean, importantly, what the thing that he didn't take away, not what he did take away was he didn't take away an injury from the cellar. That was, that was good. Even despite the exposed nails uh, from the old kitchen boards and things, uh, you that you didn't return the king back worse than when he arrived. Yeah, yeah, that was a little bit of a worry. But what did he t- take away from it? I think, I think he was probably a little surprised at how hard and specific the stuff around the off thing and century crack was. Mm-hmm. I I wonder whether he thought that would be a bit more reasonable and would do better on that stuff, I, I suppose. And maybe that would give him an indication that, that, you know, if he ever wanted to go and do that route and he's expressed interest to me and Pete about it over the years, is that it would have to require some really specific training. You just can't be... 9c climber and churn up and climb an 8c in a really specific style it's that specific so you'd have to work on that and then i think he walked away with a pretty reasonable level of insight and confidence into knowing that he was or is a really good broad well-experienced crack climber and he can do all of the stuff and, and he knows what he's doing on that front. Because there were a few comments when we first had him down the cellar around him saying, oh, well, I, I'm not sure that I know that much about what I'm doing and that I'm that good at crack climbing. And I was thinking, oh, I'm pretty sure you you do. Right. Uh, and I think, you know, trying all those different sizes and all those different circuits and problems down there, if you can perform in the cellar and he performed by far the best out of anyone we've ever had down there, you're a, a really good climber. Well, I appreciate you sharing that little behind the scenes perspective there. I found that super relatable as well. Obviously, it's hard to relate with Adam Andra as a climber on almost anything, but there's something cool to think about, you know, the best climber in the world needing to put in a serious amount of time to climb something well below his top end grade in a style that is very specific. And that's what you and Pete proved when you went out and did century crack, that you can train in a specific style in a specific way and go out and do the dang thing. The thing that very few people in the world uh, are capable of. And maybe it sounds like nobody off the couch would be capable of. So more learnings to be had out of the cellar. I love it. Mm. Yeah. 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 I I think it's definitely one of those routes which requires specific preparation because it's just isn't, there's not enough crossover with that with, normal climbing in air quotes. Do you think we'll see Adam in century crack or underneath the the underpass of a highway first? Which which is going to be the first proj? Under underside of a highway because I told him about a potential project in Germany at the beginning of the year and he was pretty interested with that. And I saw, especially when I said how hard it could be. Huh? Uh, so I would say that would be the one that I feel like you'd be most interested and also it's more practical i mean it's closer to where he is in czech republic less traveling right and you know going to the white rim in the u.s is a big undertaking so i think that's yeah a different kettle of fish 
Oh man, we'll keep our eyes out. I love that. Well, of course he knows who to come to for some beta on that. Wear goggles so the the tires and the the dirt and the debris don't end up in the face. Thanks, man. Love that stuff. Really fun peek into into that world there. Let's shift gears. Let's talk about what's going on here. We're we're approaching in season for a lot of climbers in North America, in kind of the northern hemisphere, depending on where you're at or when you're listening. Who knows? But our focus right now is we're getting closer to in-season. For me, at least, that's still a month out from like actually getting good conditions. But I'm already starting to wrestle with, as I look at my training plan, how much rest I should take before I'm going to go out and work on the project. And so I'm not putting in red point goes right now. Again, those are probably going to be a month off. But I still want to show up feeling snappy enough where I can actually try to work out that crux or work out some sections or figure out what my links might be. And when I look at my lattice plan, there's quite a bit of volume in there right now because I'm also trying to train up my endurance system and wind all of that up right now as I have just come off of a strength block. So how much fatigue should I allow or how fresh should I be as I'm going out and then working on the project. And I'm assuming that ratio will start to change a little bit as I get a little bit closer to actually wanting to put in some big links and, and that kind of thing. But how, how should I look at that? Or how do you look at that? I mean, normally for any climate transitioning into the peak part of their season is that you're going from this pattern of higher volume training where the overall training load is causing overload. So we want overload to create that adaptation and the improvement, whether it's strength, power, endurance, endurance, et cetera. And so when we transfer into the peak season, what we're trying to do is pull off the overall training load so that we're not in this overload cycle all the time. And we're more into that kind of sort of super compensation or consistent adaptation cycle where you're just seeing the improvements from all the base work that you put in week after week. And the natural way in which we do this with training is we'll often just kind of segue the two together and they'll stitch together in a sort of a spectrum of easing from one thing into the other. Not because you can't just do a hard stop on one and start the other sort of modality of training. So going down to low volume and higher intensity work, but more because when you first go and try your project for the season, you're just learning moves and you are starting to put together just some familiarity of the route. It doesn't matter that you're not going to be red pointing it yet. So it doesn't, you don't really need to be fully recovered and on peak form. And then secondly, is that one of the, I suppose you could call it downsides, but maybe just something to be aware of for any climber is that when you get into peak shape and you're in this sort of constant tapering cycle or you're trying to feel your very best the overall load of training has to be quite low to the point where you're actually going to effectively start to detrain from all that hard work you did so if you sustain a peak load or how much load you have to be to be in peak shape for a long time you're going to detrain and you know in air quotes lose those improvements that you had in peak, peak season. So it's, it's a compromise, it's a balance. Yeah, well, that's that's kind of the balance that I'm I'm looking at. It's It seems like maybe I'm still on the early enough end here where I shouldn't be doing that. And maybe a lot of climbers, if we're 
still we're starting to feel cooler temperatures you know it, it's it's gone from i'm speaking in fahrenheit here because i can't do the conversion off the top of my head but from you know mid 80s or 90 degrees down to mid 70s or something like that it's still high humidity it's it's not it's not conditions, but it just feels like it's coming. You get that one crisp day and you're like, oh my God, I got to be ready to red point. But really, I've got another month before that kicks in. And if I'm hearing correctly, it's okay to bring a little bit of fatigue then into these earlier project days. Sure, I might not be as snappy as you know I could be if I had taken off a full two days prior to that day out at the crag. But that's not necessary if I'm going to be hang dogging and working out moves and that kind of thing. And, and it's important to keep that volume up now so that as I taper, maybe in four weeks, that's when I start to feel like piping strong and fresh. Yeah, yeah. It, I mean, it's, it's certainly an approach that you can take. I think it's really important to understand that the approach that's going on with your training at the moment is not the only approach. You could argue, for example, if you had someone that was in a very similar position to you and has not spent very much time going through this journey of overload, feeling quite fatigued, doing a training cycle, then eventually bringing it to sort of success with project at the end. And they don't feel super confident with that, that when they go out into their projecting season, and if it psychologically is really hard for them to deal with feeling quite tired and having crappy kind of links and not feeling that great on the project, you might argue that that person needs to be deloaded a lot faster so they don't have to deal with that psychological burden if they're not yet in the state where they can deal with that or work with that productively. So it will come somewhat down to the individual, really that approach. And then the other thing to be aware of as well is that if you are an injury prone climber, and you have a project which is very, very high intensity in terms of like the difficulty of the moves are very bouldery versus more kind of long end power endurance or very endurancey. is that if you carry too much fatigue into those early projecting sessions, you're just increasing your risk a little with the, with the injury side of things, actually working on that project, especially if you're going out multiple times a week. So that's another part of it to kind of consider it in the equation all right y'all just a quick little break here to tell you about the kaya climb app have you seen this if you enjoy bouldering outdoors this is the absolute best resource to add to your kit they're working with local experts to create digital guidebooks for more than 50 bouldering areas like bishop red rock joe's squamish leavenworth rocky mountain and more being added all the time it is all right there on your phone with GPS pinned boulders, beautiful photos, and accurate directions. What? Accurate directions to bouldering areas? Crazy. Nope, they figured it out. Even when you don't have a signal. No more wandering around the woods wondering where that five-star rig is. Plus, my favorite feature, y'all, over 300,000 community uploaded beta videos for when you get shut down on the proj. And they partnered with Access Fund to help protect the areas that we all love to climb. You can hit that link in your show notes to grab a free version and also to get 20% off the pro version, which has even more badass features. It's like five bucks a month. Check it out. I love what Kai is doing. Let's talk about bouldering for a second, which is not the season I'm moving into, but I think a lot of people who are listening will be. And can you contrast 
some of what we've been talking about with regard to we're training up a lot of volume and capacity and endurance for me working on this limit sport route or you going out to the desert to somebody who's going to be going out and trying to pull the hardest six moves of their season. Yeah. So for the boulder specialists, first off is to say that a number of boulderers, depending on what their specialization is, age group, category, experiences, et cetera, will have a degree of volume work, which is a very low intensity to sort of help aid recovery and overall work capacity during a climbing session. When that's in there, you want to strip a lot of that out going into the peak season. So it's very similar to the root climb of dropping that overall training load down via the volume aspect. So remember, like training load is a function of the volume, the intensity, and the frequency of the climbing you're doing. And you can reduce training load via volume, intensity, and frequency. But as we go into peak, we do it mainly via the volume aspect. And that's true for both the boulderers and the sport climbers. And then the other thing is that when they're doing any sessions where they're looking at the sort of strength aspect of performance on the wall, so getting more specific on you know, a system board or down the local gym where they're trying problems or they're climbing outside and trying really hard things, is that they now want to really look after that recruitment element of their strength profile where they're trying problems which are shorter, harder, they're going to each attempt a lot fresher and not really trying things so much where they're sort of extending that anaerobic window or going to the point of kind of uncurling or powering out in sessions because ultimately what you're trying to do here is achieve your maximum strength capacity in this part of the year. So you want to look after that part of your strength profile. And what we know from strength training is that there's a number of different aspects that you can work on during your base season all the way through from, you know, stuff like your recruitment, your hypertrophy, so sort of changes in that muscle size through to muscle tendon unit stiffness, just a whole number of like different aspects that go into that strength profile. But recruitment is going to be the one to look after during that same max attempt problems on boards, even sometimes breaking things down to only half of the board problem. So the board that we have here at Lattice is, I think, something like maybe seven or eight moves to the top of the board. But I would now start to have attempts where I might actually only do three or four moves up that mm. board because they're really short and hard and intense. I'm not even going to get to the top, but that really helps with that recruitment aspect. If I'm doing fingerboarding, I might be dropping the hang length of those maximal fingerboard sessions down to two to maybe it tops five second hangs, no longer that five second to 10 second hang. If I'm doing any stuff, again, like contact strength, looking at really short, hard things on a campus board, just two moves, three moves on a campus board rather than like sequences that are continuing seven, eight, 10 moves. Yeah. I love that. It's interesting because I see some of that in my plan that Rouse has put in. And so I'm assuming that transfers over into route climbing as well, or maybe it's just kind of a, a minimal effective dose to keep the top end strength and power going as I'm winding up that endurance and power endurance system. But I'm still seeing some limit sessions, maybe on the moon board or the set problems. And is that something that you see for route climbers that will carry into the season? Or will that mm -hmm. start to peel out as well? Yeah, so I suppose the way to get this concept across to the root climbers out there is what 
the way that you want to feel when you go into start part of your peak season is you want to feel pretty darn fit, but not necessarily super fit on the route because you haven't yet spent a lot of time on the route. So it's like nailing that route specific fitness. So feeling pretty fit, well prepared on the endurance, power endurance aspect. And you want to feel pretty freaking boulder strong, quite snappy, feeling good on a moon board, kilt board, short end stuff, feeling pretty good on a fingerboard. But as you then transition into now I'm actually getting big links on my project, I'm getting very close and then doing that thing, I don't know, four weeks later, eight weeks later, maybe even 12 weeks later, is in reality in that situation, you'll almost certainly feel a fairly high degree of de-recruitment from that top end bouldering strength and you won't be able to do the same level of problems on a moon board. Like let's say your max problem is V9 on a moon board there's a good chance that actually by the time you're actually sending your project, you may have actually gone back up to maybe V7, occasional V8, but for sure, at least a grade down from that. Again, fingerboard scores will drop off a reasonable amount, 5%, maybe more sometimes. And that's okay because what's happened is that when you finally got to that success point on a route, you've refined all the aspects of volume, intensity, duration, intermittent rest that you have on the route to be perfect for your goal. And perfect for your goal is not climbing four moves in the moonboard. So it makes sense that this is not going to be the thing that you feel amazing on when you suddenly get your project. And that's why we always hear at Lattice over the years, people saying, oh my God, I just climbed my first 9A, but I'm so weak on a fingerboard right now. What's going on? And I go, well, yeah, of course, that's how you're going to feel. You just refined everything to perfection for your project goal. It's just going to be the way it is. It's like I remember talking to Will Bosey about after he'd done Burden of Dreams. He was not going quite so well on a fingerboard after doing that project. It was you know one of the hardest bold problems in the world. But the reality is, is that he's pulling on something which is a half to a third of a pad wide and he's got his feet on the board so the total force going through that 10 8 mil edge is going to be a lot less than what he's putting through on a one arm hang on a 20 mil edge so it's not going to be the best when he goes back on the 20 mil edge so it's this specificity element and realizing that's how climbing works and that 20 mil edge doesn't suddenly represent burden of dreams godlike performance and Doing four by fours on a really hard bob on the moonboard doesn't represent climbing your first five fourteen that's sixty moves long. They're different things. Man, that is just a mind blowing example there, though. Like at the highest end, to to think about Will pulling the hardest moves on planet Earth, uh, at least that we know of right now, and and then being underperforming on his strength tests on a hangboard. It's that's. It's almost hard to kind of wrap your head around, but it makes sense as you explain it. You've taken all of the training and made it very, very specific. And then once that's done, anything else that you try, well, you haven't been doing it, so you've lost some coordination, you've just lost some specificity to that intervention. Uh, nothing I guess I need to be worrying about right now because I'm still building up towards this season that I then will allow some things to drop off. Uh, but is there anything else that I haven't touched on here before we try to get to some listener questions where in this kind of month to six weeks before putting in 
real red point goes. And it could be tactical things, once a week getting out to the project, things I could be focusing on or, or others are focusing on since this is the season. Or it could be training concepts that we haven't touched on here at, at this like six week out from that four week performance window that's going to hit somewhere around November here in uh, Kentucky. Yeah, sure. So I think there's two things I'd probably like to make sure people kind of grasp these two concepts is one, that the ancillary training that you're doing that might be off the wall, so stuff on a pull-up bar, TRX, floor-based core work, bar work, et cetera, in complement to your training, you want to be really careful about the amount of that that you do in peak season. It's essentially, this goes into kind of like the junk mileage category. Mm. There's not a great deal of point in doing that. It's just making you more fatigued. It costs you quality in the sessions where it's really counting as part of the year. You know, like only a quarter of your year at max may be peak shape. So don't go waste a load of that by additionally doing a load of pull-ups on top of it. So really pull that out and understand that that will come at a cost to performance if you keep it in too much. And then the other aspect with your climbing is that when you're getting right into peak season is really think about the demands of your project and make sure that those are represented in your your climbing sessions and your training in that period don't just don't do too much that doesn't look like your project but likewise a caveat that goes with it don't overdo it so for example, if you are going to try your project two days a week, let's say both days of the weekend, for example, and it's got some really core intensive hard knee barring in it, it's probably going to be a mistake to do another additional two hard knee bar replica sessions midweek to complement that. Because suddenly now you're doing four hard knee bar sessions in a week, and that could be too much. But one that could be you know, just right and that could be perfect. But I wouldn't want to see someone doing, I don't know, what would they do for knee barring that would be, let's say they were hanging by a bar from their toes and they were doing kind of upside down sit-ups from their toes. If that doesn't represent the kind of like specifics of knee bar core ability, it's a bit broad and vague and generalist. So that's a waste of time. But being on the wall and actually knee barring it against an actual hold indoors and doing that once a week, yes, useful use of time. Yeah, that's great. Uh, similarly, then um, that would that kind of analogy there. If your project is hard crimping, if your project is a ton of maybe sub maximal jug hauling, doing some of that when you're not on the project, good to keep specific with your training. But doing too much of it, you're just risking overly fatiguing that system or potentially injury. Yeah, exactly. And they, those both go together, uh, being fatigued all the time and injury incidents. There, there's a definite tie for those two. Got it. Thanks, man. I'm psyched. Okay, well, this is this is great. The next time we connect, we'll be in the season if if our schedules align. So that'll be really exciting. Just a, a couple of listener questions here, as I, I want to try and get you out on time. We've got one here from Johan. He said, your last episode that covered hip mobility and the amount of improvement one could get on the wall from that was mind-blowing. Is there anything else along those lines that don't have to do with finger training that could result in significant gains on the wall? Ooh, that's a really good question. 
just anything within climbing, prep, training, etc. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, that that hip mobility conversation that we had really lit a fire in the community. And I think because for a lot of people, for obvious reasons, podcasts like mine and, every, you know, all the research out there, so much of the conversation is is sucked into finger training. And obviously, that's also a very important part of climbing as we're hanging on our fingers. But for people to wrap their heads around this notion that you presented, you could gain a couple of grades potentially in your climbing without your fingers getting any stronger, but just by getting that hip mobility opened up, especially male climbers, I think now we've created this beast of people wanting to find other ways to improve in their climbing without strengthening their fingers. So yeah, what say you? What stands out from the research? Okay, so I think the other bit, it's more of a strategic thing actually, not necessarily a physical training aspect. And, And I'm sure there are others, but it just doesn't, come to the top of my head at the moment and it's nice to be a bit kind of more variable with these things is I think there's a real benefit for a lot of people understanding how to use top-down red pointing tactics Hmm. or red pointing tactics where they get on lead early on the actual red point cruxes or parts of the routes that are going to present them with problems so that they essentially spend time in that zone and perfecting the right movement, the climbing pace, the, the clipping, which they're going to be doing on their successful red point and achieving micro success time and time again. So it just becomes normality because most athletes that you see who are really successful are very practiced at being successful and they know what it feels like to be successful and they know what it feels like to be comfortably in that success range range and then only just in that success range and i would like to see more people spending time refining that so an example would be is you're doing a 30 move route and actually the red point crux is at 20 so not 30 move 30 meters so the red point crux is at 20 meters high for example and I'd like to see climbers actually just dogging up, jugging, doing whatever up to maybe the 10 meter mark and then getting on the lead point from 10 meters through to 21 meters and repeatedly doing that section where it's kind of like the meat of the route and where it really counts so that when they start to go on red point and things are really coming together, they've actually climbed through that whole section on lead and admittedly they're fresher and it was a couple of grades easier than the real true project because it's just the isolated part in the middle but they knew what it felt like to move all the way through it to hit that jug right at the end of the last moves to know how much they had to push through their feet how much it was like to operate just in the last couple of percentage points of fatigue and so when they do the real thing they're like yeah i've done this like five times this is fine i can do this yeah, so this is this is rather than just every attempt starting from the ground, whether you're on a boulder or a sport route for for that matter, right? Every attempt kind of starting from the ground, you fall and maybe you go indirect and you rest there for 10 minutes or whatever, and then you start again. You're saying keep ground fresh. Go, go, go up and you know, maybe jug your way up if somebody else had already gotten the rope up or clip up with a clip stick uh, stick clip if you're on a, a sport route. Maybe if you're on a boulder, it's a little harder. You could stand on your buddy's back or something like that. But you're saying essentially 
the new start of your route is up higher than the ground. Think of that as the new start of your route and try to climb either to the top of the boulder, to the chains, or or maybe just through a crux section, like you were saying, that might be higher up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it gives you a chance to emotionally disconnect from the success of the route. It, mm. It's not saying that there's anything wrong with being emotionally connected to your success in a route, but if you're too connected and too dependent on that, I think that's a dangerous place to be especially if you aren't that good with putting up with failure and things not going so well and, and setbacks. So because you, if you ask someone, why don't you try and do that? They go, but what if I could have actually got to the top on that attempt? And I'll go, well, well, maybe you will, but that means that you can't deal with the fact that you're not able to go climbing enjoy all of the moves but you just excluded the first five meters of it and now you're discounting that whole experience and saying it's not valuable to you that's something to look at if you as a climber cannot go out and just enjoy movement and climb all the hard stuff and really try hard and that's not worth anything to you you should have a look at how you you feel about climbing Hmm. hell yeah love that bringing it back to the joy and the experience and the passion that we even started this conversation with 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 adam Thanks, Tom. Loved that answer. And, and definitely something as we're getting in season, it's, it's very timely where a lot of us are going to have the opportunities to take a look at our project and break it up in more creative ways than just trying to push our high point every single time that we go out. One more question here, and I'll, I'll let you go. We'll save the rest for, for next time. Becca asks, when I meet my friends at the boulders or sport crags, they're always able to do way more goes than I am. What's the best way to build capacity so that I can have longer and higher quality days when I'm out? It's a few aspects to this. So one is have a look at the size of you compared to your climbing friends. If you are a really small petite climber and your friends are much larger and hold a larger muscle mass, then the work capacity of larger muscles is higher. That's just how it is there's a there's a degree that is trainable and you can increase the work capacity in a particular in sort of intensity or volume so that's one thing to understand could be just a reality around it and then secondly is eating properly and are you fueled enough for your sessions this is going to really affect the work capacity if you're in a calorie deficit or perhaps just neutral with your calorie intake sort of your baseline activity and you should then do really hard sessions, then you may have a lower work capacity. And then finally is understanding the fatigability of your aerobic muscles or your slower twitch muscle fibers versus your fast twitch muscle fibers. And have you trained the fatigability of those muscle groups? So if you are someone who spends a lot of time in the aerobic zone, for example, you may have a really good fatigability of those particular muscle fibers in the forearm. But if your friends spend all of their time working anaerobically and that's the session that you're doing together, there's a good reason why they may outperform you because they just spend a lot of time in that zone. So I think that's the other thing to be aware of. But it's a blend of all those items and it's hard to say which one affects it the most, but that's where I would tend to to have a look. Yeah, great holistic advice there, I think, to look at nutrition as well as the specificity of the types of climbing. And and as you started it with <clears throat> just looking at who you are compared to the people you're climbing with, maybe they got 
you know, 30% more muscle mass than you do. And so uh, it's logical to think that they're going to have a little bit of a bigger gas tank there. <clears throat> Thank you, Tom. Appreciate that, man. I, I'm, I'm going to get you out of here. But uh, as we always like to do, I want to wrap up with a little update on where you're at. The last time we spoke, you were just starting to get a little bit more specific into crack training. You had been very nonspecific leading up to that point. You were just in Mallorca doing deep water soloing. I'm not sure where that lands on the specificity meter, but it looked like it was pretty high on the fun meter. So where are you, where are you at right now? How are you feeling about your goals for heading out to the desert here this fall? Yeah, so now I'm so I'm kind of in peak training sort of method at the moment. So a lot of this now is representing very much the power endurance end of the spectrum. For me, it's at least half of my sessions involve some form of crack training. And because the, the project that I want to try in the US is involving around a crack. And then the other aspect of it is that because I'm more on the kind of weak but good endurance end of a climber, I'm still making sure that a lot of the crack stuff I do is actually in the very high intensity zone rather than very high volume zone. Because if I neglect the intensity part too early as I transition into peak shape, then I just de-recruit and effectively feel weaker. And the crux sections on the route that I want to try are relatively hard. It's not a, a endurance-only route. It's got some quite hard boulder sections. So I need to be having spare in the tank. I can't just go in it and say, oh, my max boulder grade on crack is b9 for example i need to be like pretty comfortably at a kind of like a b11 crack boulder kind of ability otherwise i'm just not gonna have enough spare capacity even if i'm fit awesome i love i love tracking your progression alongside mine as we're kind of on opposite ends of of our project goal spectrum here with with the routes that we've chosen but really cool to see how you're moving more and more towards this specificity you got a climbing trip to italy coming up gonna do some hard crack climbing there yeah, hopefully. I think there's a couple of projects, maybe some repeats, and I'm climbing with Pete for a week, so that will be really good fun. And yeah, I mean, I love Orco. We've we've put up so many new routes over the, over the years. It's like a second home. Orco and Moab are probably our two favorite places for, you know, doing first ascents and things. Oh, it's so exciting, man. Well, we'll keep posted on Instagram. Thank you as always for joining. Always so grateful for your help and your mentorship here as we get into the season. And I guess the next time we chat, we're going to be ready to put some red point goes on our projects or right around then. So let's get at it with the training and talk soon. Yeah, great. Thanks for having me again. And that wraps up another great chat with a guy who can tap into the tryhard, whether he's in his cellar, on century crack, or passing a kidney stone. Mr. Tom Randall from Lattice Training. If you're a patron, you can see that full uncut video of today's conversation with Tom right over on your Patreon feed, along with all of the other bonus content and ad-free episodes that you get there. If you're not a patron, you can either subscribe right there in your Apple Podcast app, or if you listen elsewhere, Pop over to patreon.com slash the struggle climbing show to check things out. I mean, it's basically like the price of a beer each month and you can quit any time, though I hope you don't because your support is what keeps me going. So thank you, thank you, thank you for being so awesome. Also, a big thanks to Friction Labs and the Kaya Climb app for bringing you this episode at zero cost. Amazing brands doing amazing things. Give them some love and score yourself a nice discount on what they're offering. Info and links are right there in your podcast player. 
The struggle is carbon neutral in partnership with the Honnold Foundation. Love those guys. This episode was produced and hosted by me, Ryan Devlin, and The Struggle is part of the Plug Tone Audio Collective, a collection of the best, most impactful podcasts in the outdoor industry. I hope you're getting your training dialed and tapping into some tryhard yourself. And if you're struggling, well, so am I. But that's kind of the point, isn't it? And thankfully, The Struggle makes us stronger. See y'all soon.